Hey there, everyone. It's me, Josh. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen a 2013 episode, How the Rosetta Stone Works. It's kind of amazing, actually, that had it not been for this one government decree that happened to be written in a few different languages, we may never have figured out what the heck hieroglyphics mean, and they would have been lost forever, including the culture that formed the basis of a significant portion of Western civilization. So check it out. How the Rosetta Stone works, coming at you right now. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and this is Stuff You Should Know. The overly hot studio edition. I... I have a bit of a chill. No, you don't. I do. I'm not at all hot. Yeah, you also said it hurt when our new coworker shook your hand. So, <laughs> what does that say? That he has a strong handshake. Okay, and you're always cold. Yeah, it's all these lamps in here. Well, Jerry's decorated. It's nice. It is nice. It's uh, just like an IKEA catalog. <laughs> That's right. Um, Chuck. Yes. How many times have you been to Egypt? Um, counting that trip in high school zero same here yeah and yet we know an awful lot about egypt yeah it's It's, popular especially ancient egypt sure like i would wager that we probably know more about ancient egypt than modern egypt oh yeah most people in the west yeah is is there a modern egypt there is and uh (laughs) it's undergoing quite a bit of turmoil right now yeah i know i'm kidding um oh okay (laughs) i just wanted to make sure that you knew that egypt was still around yes okay um well, the reason that you and I know a lot about Egypt is thanks to a uh, soft science, one of the humanities, you would call it, um, called Egyptology. Yeah. Pretty on-the-nose name for the study of ancient Egypt. Yeah, it's a real popular thing mm-hmm. and has been for a while. A while, but not too terribly long. I would say about the beginning of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, and the reason that all of it was fostered and that all of it came about and that we, you and me, know about Egypt was because of the discovery of a tablet known as the Rosetta Stone. That's right. But you can also go back even further and make the case that if it wasn't for Napoleon Bonaparte, we may not understand Egypt to this day. Yeah, that little guy. He wasn't that little, though. Is that right? Right. He was average height. Right. Why, why does... Why do people say that then? Where'd that come from? Because some doctor wrote down, I think upon his death, that he was five foot two. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the doctor was using the French inch, which is longer than the British imperial inch. Really? So when you translate five foot two from the French inch to the imperial inch. He was six eight. He was about (laughs) five six. Okay. Which which is average average height. And uh, the other reason why he was called like the little emperor by his armies was because compared to most of his bodyguards and his people he had around him, sure. he was shorter than them. Yeah, I guess when you're 5'6", you want some 6'4 dudes around you. Right. So, But the idea that he was a very short man is uh, is not correct. Yeah, I'd always heard that, but I didn't know the story. The French Inch. Mm-hmm. There's your band name for the day. There it is. <laughs> uh, although I typically don't like rhyming names. French Inch doesn't rhyme. It just it sounds similar. I wouldn't call it a rhyme. French and Inch? Yeah, French. Inch. Oh, the E and the I? Yeah. That's nitpicky. 
<laughs> well, yeah. It's the vowels that rhyme, not the consonants. Yeah, but if you were Steve Malkmus and you put French at the end of a line and an inch at the end of another, it would be it would be rhymey. But, and you'd sell a lot of records. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there was our um, pavement reference That's for right. the episode. <laughs> That's becoming a daily thing, too, isn't mm-hmm. it? So uh, you want to get on with this? Yeah, let's do it. We're going to be talking Rosetta Stone, not the uh, language software, which neither one of us has ever used. No. We're talking about the the real thing, which is actually bigger than I thought. You know, many things are smaller for me, like when you see them in person. Mona Lisa? Of course, Mona Lisa's small. Like I went to England. I was like, Big Ben, that ain't so big. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think I had that impression of Big Ben, but okay. I was kind of underwhelmed. It definitely didn't seem big. Whereas the Eiffel Tower, that was bigger than I thought. That is where I developed a fear of heights that still plagues me to this day. Like, it literally happened to me on the Eiffel Tower. On the way up, never had a fear of heights in my entire life. On the way down, (laughs) I, like, was hanging on to the fence. Really? And it took me forever to get down because I was suddenly deathly afraid of heights. It just hit me. Just right. My brain... Uh, Changed. Uh, yeah. How old were you? Uh, 17-ish. Wow. Yeah. Huh. I didn't go up to the top. I probably missed out. I didn't either. It was the first level that got me. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So um, anyway, where was I going? Oh, it's bigger than I thought it was. It is um, black basalt, and it weighs uh, about three-quarters of a ton, um, 46 inches high, 0.5, 30 inches wide, and 12 inches deep. And it's it's large. It's heavy. It's um, you didn't write this, did you? No, no. Um, it's about the size of a heavy coffee table. Were you about to make fun of something? No, I, I uh, was just going to say whoever wrote this, ref- you know, referenced an LCD TV of yeah. medium size. Yeah, a medium screen LCD television. Oh, by the way, thank you to Teresa Dove, uh, fan request. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's who requested this one. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's larger than I thought, and I learned a lot about this. I thought the Rosetta Stone because I'm a dummy, um, was literally like, here's what our alphabet is, and here's what everything means. Mm-hmm. And now that you found it, you can uh, decipher everything. Yeah, I think I had the same impression as well until I read this. I thought it was like created as a key yeah. to hieroglyphics. Not at all. Not so. It was a uh, government document, basically. It's a stele, or yeah. stella. Stele is the plural. Yeah. And uh, it's not just the Egyptians that use stella, or stele. Um, the Mayans have largely been figured out their language has from old stele. Yeah. Um, well, and that's it. Those are the two <laughs> that use stele. Yeah. In this case, it's an, an inscription carved in three different languages, uh, Greek, hieroglyphics, and demotic with a T, not demonic. Yeah, demotic. But since I'm from the South, I soften my T, so it might sound like I'm saying demonic. Yeah. Um, And basically, it was in the three languages to ensure that everybody could read it because it was an official government decree. Not super exciting, though. No, it wasn't. Basically, what the Rosetta Stone says, and like you said, it's in three languages, there's a decree that says um, essentially that Ptolemy V is a great ruler, and he is a uh, righteous worshiper of all the right gods, so he's okay in our book. Yeah. And this decree was made by some priests who gathered at Memphis— and they um, inscribed the stone, or had it inscribed and dated March twenty seventh, one ninety six BC. Yeah, and it's not; it doesn't actually say March twenty seventh in hieroglyphics. It says eighteen Mashir, which on the Egyptian calendar translates to something like 
um, March 27th. <laughs> uh, and then the, they got the 196 because uh, somewhere in there, it references the ninth year of Ptolemy V's reign, right. which is about 196. So that's where they got the date from, the, the, what we would in the West equate it to. Yeah, so um, like we said, it, it doesn't say anything of particular interest. Uh, at the time, it was an important message, but it's not the Rosetta Stone because of what is transcribed upon that stone. No, it's the fact that it's in three different languages. Exactly. Yeah, so there's, like you said, hieroglyphics, Demotic and Greek. And hieroglyphics were a sacred um, alphabet. Yeah. They used that for really important stuff. See, I didn't know this either. I thought just any old thing they wanted to write was a hieroglyph. No, that's what they had demiotic for, or demotic. That was kind of like an abbreviated, shorthand, more vulgar version of hieroglyphics. Yeah, and in between that was uh, hieratic. Um which oh, was sorry. slightly yeah. more complicated than demotic, but less complicated and not sacred like hieroglyphics. Yeah, it was like a, kind of a transition between um, demotic and hieroglyphics. Yeah, it was cursive. Right. So you, can, um, so you could use um, hieratic for like a business transaction. Sure. But if you were saying the king is a very righteous ruler and you mentioned the gods, you're going to use hieroglyphics. That's right. So to have it written in Greek, uh, demotic, which was an offshoot of hieratic, which was an offshoot of hieroglyphics, yeah. and um, hieroglyphics, these priests that gathered and issued this decree that was written on the Rosetta Stone, they made sure that everyone in Egypt who was literate yeah. could read this one way or another. Yeah, and it was sort of a, not a stroke of luck. I mean, it was just smart thinking at the time, but ended up being a stroke of luck because the three languages, I mean, without that, I don't think we, we may have never been able to figure out hieroglyphics. No, agreed. And, um, They've been lost forever. Exactly. Um, and that's, that's not the only way that the Rosetta Stone was kind of uh, a bit of fortune. But um, so the reason that it was lost was up until the 4th century AD, uh-huh. any average Egyptian could have read the Rosetta Stone sure. one way or another. Yeah. But after that, the Egypt... It, it left the pharaonic stage. Yeah. Cleopatra was the last pharaoh of Egypt. And then it came to be ruled by the Greeks, later on the Romans, mm-hmm. the Ptolemites, um, and a bunch of different foreigners or different groups. And with these groups came the introduction of new gods yeah. and the suppression of old gods. And since hieroglyphics were... Um, very much religious in yeah. nature. They're sacred or holy, but associated with those old gods. Hieroglyphics itself came to be cut off, stopped, suppressed. Yeah, especially Christianity. Um, they tended to want to get rid of other competing gods and languages that are tied to those gods. Right, but luckily we still had demotic. That's right, and demotic wasn't taboo. Um, that eventually uh, became what's known as Coptic, and Coptic... Uh, used um, some Greek um, and then a little bit of uh, still of the hieroglyphic symbols. So there's still like this, this just a little bit very tenuous link between yeah. Coptic and hieroglyphics. But then Coptic is lost. It's pushed out by Arabic. Yeah, and then that was like way gone. Goodbye hieroglyphics. That's it. That was like the hieroglyphics is no longer understood by anyone walking planet Earth. Yeah, and that means that. 
all of the ancient Egyptian civilization itself was lost. Yeah, thousand years. Aside from its structures, um, the the thought put into it, the reasoning behind it, all of the explanations, all of the inscriptions, all the writing, all over these ancient buildings are understood by no one now. And then, as a result of that, uh, the buildings themselves, the last vestiges of this ancient civilization, are deconstructed and used for the next wave by yeah. new rulers. And so, ancient e- Egyptian culture is lost to to the mists of time. Yeah. The, wow. Thanks. Very nice. Yeah, there was no love lost. They were basically like, we don't need this language anymore. We don't need these sacred buildings anymore. They're pagan anyway. Yeah, let's tear them all down, build up new ones. And oddly, <laughs> the Rosetta Stone was actually used as a buttress in a wall of a new building. Yes. So it was part of the construction. Right. That's how this is another way that this is all just stroke of luck after stroke of luck. So the first stroke of luck, as you pointed out, is that they just happened to decree that this thing be written in three languages. Yeah. Okay. Same message in three languages. Then it's used for a building, a wall, right? Yeah. Then it happens to be discovered by some French who are marooned in Egypt because they got crushed by the British right when they tried to invade. Yeah, I guess let's talk about that for a second. Okay. The French thought, hey, we need, a, we, we need to get a stronghold on uh, India eventually. And Napoleon said, I think a good way to do that is to start uh, a little further away in, let's say, Egypt. Let's cut off the, the Brits' uh, access to the Nile River, and that'll really help our cause. Unfortunately, the Brits had a great navy, and pretty much destroyed all their ships and stranded them in mm-hmm. Egypt for, what, 19 years? Yeah. Yeah. And so for the French, whose ships were now at the bottom of uh, Abu Kir Bay, um, they decided that they really kind of needed to set themselves to creating forts. Yeah, like since we're here. Right. Um and it wasn't just military that was there. Part of this invasion, this um, strategy that Napoleon had come up with to take over Egypt was kind of a hearts and minds strategy too. And so he created something called the Institute of Egypt, also known as the Scientific and Artistic Commission. Yeah. Uh, mineralogists, mathematicians, art historians. A lot of engineers. Chemists. All of, like all of these people from the the letters and sciences um, brought together to understand and study Egypt. Yeah, they were actually given military rank, but they weren't. I think that was just more of a here, just so we'll call you military, right? Like they they weren't from military backgrounds, so they were thinkers. But they were among this invading force. Yeah, that was left stranded in France. So as the the real military guys were building the forts. The people from the Institute of Egypt start studying Egypt. Yeah, I guess they were the first Egyptologists. Egypt. Yeah. Oh, boy. It was close. <laughs> uh, they definitely were. Uh, and it was very covert uh, operation. Like, they weren't really allowed to talk about uh, what they were doing that much except to just say, hey, we're following Napoleon's orders, acting on behalf of the good of the French Republic. Right. That's so th- what we're doing. Don't ask any questions. Yeah. That's what, don't ask why I have this measuring tape out. Exactly. Or why I'm transcribing things from papyrus. But they did um, They did become, I guess, embedded with the local population as well to help learn as much as they could. And so it's under this climate that a French soldier one day um, finds this very polished black stone that's inscribed. And something about it 
told him that it was pretty important. So he took it to these um, early Egyptologists, the French, and said, you guys think this is important? And they said yes. Yeah, that was Lieutenant Pierre-Francois Bouchard. And uh, he took it to his boss, and they, they said, okay, this is weird that this is built into a wall, but it's clearly something of note, Yeah, and maybe we should take a closer look at it. And um, immediately they started to get to work on, on trying to transcribe it. it was super difficult at the time um, and would prove to be difficult over the years. Um, it eventually ended up in the hands of uh, England, of course. But luckily, these uh, the Institute of Egypt people made copies of it. Yeah. I think that like etchings or uh, the plaster uh, molds and things. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. But they had readable copies of the Rosetta Stone. So when they did give it up to the British, it wasn't entirely lost to them. That's right. And give it up as in not here, have this. It was more like here, we're taking this in the uh, Treaty of Alexandria. We're going to take this and a bunch of other stuff. So now basically you have the French and the British both have the Rosetta Stone. The one group that doesn't are the Egyptians. But we'll get to that later. Yeah. Both of them recognize that this is a very, very important something. They know that it's some sort of decree. They recognize that it's in three different languages. And I think it becomes obvious to them that this could be the key to understanding hieroglyphs, which people have tried to understand. This is not new. No. People going back to a fellow named um, Horopolo, who was a uh, 5th century scholar... Supposedly, he may not have actually existed. Um, He created basically what was a translation for hieroglyphics. That's right. But it was a a false translation, as we'll see. But, you know, dating back basically from the moment that hieroglyphics were lost to history, people have tried to understand them. So these, this, this was the British and the French were aware of this, like, this may be the key to these mysterious hieroglyphics. And... This is important. So we're going to try to translate it. Yeah, well, it became a a race, really, because they didn't like each other very much, and they both wanted to be the first ones to to figure out what these hieroglyphics meant and how to unlock this history. Mm -hmm. And um, so they sent their best and their brightest on the English side, the British side. uh, It was a scholar named Thomas Young. And then on the French side, we had Jean-Francois Champollion, who... uh, he was sort of born to do this, apparently. He was way into Egypt as a kid even, and as a young child said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out hieroglyphics one day. Yeah. He was even called the Egyptian because he had dark skin and dark hair. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a magician like foretold his fame one day. Yeah, when he was born, supposedly, a yeah. magician said, this guy's going to be famous. And, th- and he was. And, um, I, yeah, he was a very talented linguist. He studied under... A uh, a guy named um, uh, Sylvester de Sassi. Yeah, Antoine Isaac Sylvester de Sassi. Uh, he um, who would take a crack at the Rosetta Stone, but he trained uh, Champollion. Is that how we're saying it? Uh, yeah, sure. He trained him 
Um, but Champollion be, quickly became went from student to master. He applied for uh, he applied to be a student at an institute in Paris, and they were uh, impressed enough with his application that they said, "How about you just skip the school part and come be on the faculty?" <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a talented linguist. Yeah, they said the same thing when I applied to Georgia. Is that right? They're like, you just want to go and be an English teacher? Yeah. I went, nah. Oh, really? You turned it down, huh? Sure, I wanted to be a student. Oh, gotcha. Um, so before all this happens, um, we we have the Greek inscription transcribed, which it was Reverend Stephen Watson in 1802. And I don't want to say it was no big deal, but there were quite a few people that could have done this. It wasn't like unlocking hieroglyphics. No. But it was a necessary part of the process. Right. So we want to give him his due. So we have a we have a translation, an accurate translation of what the, the Rosetta was. Stone says. Exactly. So that's step one. And if you have one translated, then if you're a linguist, I guess, I mean, it sounds really difficult to do. To, I mean, it's I can't imagine the painstaking process of figuring out an alphabet. Yeah, I mean, think about how hard it is to translate a, a well-known language into yeah. a, a language that you speak. Imagine translating a language that's totally lost into something understandable. Yeah. Um, so we had the Greek, and then uh, eventually we had the Demotic as well. Um, yeah, thanks to Antoine. Assassin. Yeah. Antoine. <laughs> uh, and uh, that same year, at the same time, a Swedish diplomat named uh, Akerbalad um, also translated the Demotic. Um, and they both went about it two different ways. I thought this was pretty interesting. Yeah, so de Sassi, um figured out that there were two proper names, at least in there, Ptolemy and Alexander, and he used those to match up sounds and symbols. Um, Ackerblad probably had the bigger breakthrough. Yeah. He used a different technique. He recognized that there was something similar between Demotic and Coptic. Yeah, and he was well-schooled in Coptic. Right. Which helped, obviously. Yeah, that that was his big breakthrough. He he figured out what words spelled love, temple, and Greek, and he used that to form basically this rough uh, structure for Demotic based on his awareness of Coptic. Yeah, that's only 11 letters. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. But, I, I mean, if you've got 11 letters, that's a decent... Uh, I think they called it a skeletal outline. Right. I guess that's what you'd have. Well, yeah, I mean, especially since Coptic was only, what, 22 plus a couple more from hieroglyphics. Yeah, it's like a big Wheel of Fortune game Yes, after that. Right. So the thing is, though, this established connection now between Coptic and Demotic and then Demotic and hieroglyphics since they're side by side, that kind of uh, opened up this mentality that would be needed to finally crack the hieroglyphics for, for um, the Rosetta Stone. And Thomas Young was the first to really try it. He was the British guy. And he got somewhat far, but he gave up. Yeah, he, uh, in 1814, his big breakthrough was uh, figuring out what a cartouche was. Yeah. And that is, um, it's, they say oval, but it's a little more squared away with round edges. But it's a loop, basically, with hieroglyphic characters in it. And he figured out that these are not only proper names, but royal names. Yeah. Anything contained in a cartouche is a royal name, which was a big breakthrough because he identified Ptolemy, uh, the pharaoh's name, in one of the car- cartouches. Yeah. Cartouche? Yeah. Cartouches. Cartouches. <laughs> and uh, his queen, uh, Berenica, was in there as well. So he said, you know what? Again, I've got these two names now to work with. Um, but he was still working on Heropolo's false premise 
that hieroglyphics was not phonetic in nature and that it was based just on symbols. Right. That's what Hierapolo's big contribution was to confuse yeah. <laughs> a century's worth of scholars. Hier- I felt bad for Young because he was on to something, and if he wasn't using that the fake or, mm-hmm. or not fake but just the poor system, then he might have figured it out. Right. So this is the thing. Like Everyone believed Hierapolo because Hierapolo claimed – that his translation was a direct translation from hieroglyphic. It was written in the 5th century AD, right around the time we lost hieroglyphics. So it was considered to be a primary source and basically completely reasonable. Yeah, but it was wrong. It was wrong because it said that hieroglyphics are symbolic. So like if you see a cart a picture that looks like a cart next to a cat, mm-hmm. and then a lizard, what that should say under Hierapolo's translation is cart, cat, lizard. This kept throwing everybody <laughs> off because it didn't make sense. It's especially Right, especially <laughs> when compared to the Greek translation and the translation of Demotic, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. So like you said, Jung gave up, but he published his findings, and you can really strongly make a case that had it not been for Jung's breakthrough, uh, Champollion yeah. would not have cracked the Rosetta Stone. No, which uh, we should mention here that like they should just accept each other as as coworkers and colleagues and get along, but <laughs> there was a competition that exists to this day of who, what country claims that they translated the Rosetta Stone. The French still say that Champagnon was really the one. The Brits obviously say, no, it was really young. And uh, even when they displayed it in 1972, one of the few times it's left England, or maybe the only time, uh, they let France display it uh, for like a year. Um, They argued about the size of the photos Mm -hmm. of the two on both sides of it, when in fact... The photos were the same size. Of Young and Champollion. Yeah, not photos, but... Uh, portraits. Portraits. Yeah. Yeah, but the French were like, well, no, Young's is bigger. The Brits were like, no, his is bigger. Right. And they were the same size. So they were really just... They never uh, came to a common ground on who did it, when in fact they both did. And there were rumors, apparently, during that time that France was going to just steal the Rosetta Stone and keep it and not yeah. return it back to England. And this was in the 1970s, so yeah. it's not like a long time ago. Right. Um, so Champagnon picked up in 1814 where uh, Young left off and started to think, you know what, I need to think more about this this symbol thing that uh, Harapolo, like I don't know if he, he was on base after all, and that was actually the breakthrough. He, um, he got some old cartouches mm-hmm. and he figured out um, that the last two letters and one of them were identical, so... That's a good thing because you know that it's the same letter. Mm-hmm. He figured out that it was the letter S, and um, then the first character was a circle, and he said maybe that's the sun. Right. And in ancient Egypt, the sun god was Ra. In, in Coptic. Yeah, and so basically figured out that that name was Ramses. Yeah. The, and that was a huge breakthrough. He figured out the, the identical letters, the last two were S's. The first one was Ra. And since he knew that it was in a cartouche, that it was a royal name, yep. from that era, the only person it could have been was Ramses. So that's how he cracked the code, like you say. Yeah, and cracked it in like, hey, this is a phonetic thing. He was wrong the whole time, and apparently he fainted on the spot. Yeah. Which is dramatic. Yeah, kind of cute. He was French, sure. Um, so out of that moment... Egyptology was fully born. Like now we had a way to understand all this stuff 
that hadn't been destroyed and reused as building material. Which took a long time, though. It wasn't like they could just read it. It still took a lot of translating. Oh, yeah. But they had the basis. Exactly. Um, Yeah, all they'd done is transcribe one single Stella. They had millennia worth of things to, like papyruses or papyri, um, and building inscriptions and sarcophagi and all that stuff. Love letters. Yeah, whatever you have, sure. Um, And so Egyptology is born, and now that it's understood at that moment, there's also a great desire to protect Egypt and all of its treasures. Yeah, and to get things right, because previous to that, Napoleon and gang did a pretty good job, but they also speculated a lot. Yeah, because they couldn't read hieroglyphics. Yeah, so they ended up correcting a lot of things about what they thought about Egypt. And um, like you said, they wanted to protect things because Egypt at the time was, I mean, they were selling these things off to collectors left and right because A, they didn't know their true value, and B, there was a market for it. Sure, doctors during the Middle Ages who were just big dummies would use mummies from Egypt. Uh, They'd grind it up and use it to cure disease, which didn't work. (laughs) Um, And so there was this move to protect Egyptian antiquities from Egyptians. There was kind of this patriarchal mentality, especially among the British, that we need to get everything out of Egypt and into museums and into like the hands of us who will preserve them and not sell them to middle age or middle middle ages doctors yeah. for cure alls. But to his credit, in my opinion, Champollion argued very strongly in favor of keeping them in founding a museum in Egypt to store these and keeping them in Egypt. Yeah, I think he was uh, a little bit of a control freak. Like, he knew that he could care for things in the proper way, mm-hmm. and he I don't think he trusted even other museums at the time to care for things in the right way, and he was kind of right because a lot of it was destroyed. Yeah, like, apparently to preserve an ancient papyrus, you have to store it in a low-humidity um, area. Yeah. <laughs> in a... Chamber. In a, <laughs> in a bamboo box container. Yeah. And they didn't know this, and they shipped them by sea to the UK, and they all like crumbled the nothingness on the way. Dummies. Um, yeah. So the Rosetta Stone uh, still sits in the uh, museum in uh, London, where it's been since 1802, except for the time it went to France briefly. Uh, and in 2003, Egypt was like, you know what? I want this thing back. Not I. We want this thing back. <laughs> and it's ours, and it sh- I don't care who found it. It's ours. And England said in 2005, took them two years to build a replica and say, hey, how about this? This is just like it. I guess at least they didn't try to pass it (laughs) off as the real one. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, Sent them a replica and they were like, I appreciate this. This is nice, but we really would like the real thing. And England said no. And not just England, but a lot of the big museums, the Louvre mm-hmm. and um, a bunch of the world museums kind of all got together in support of one another and said, you know what, Repat- repatriation is, we're not into it. Huh. We're just not going to give things back anymore because we can care for it best. It belongs to the world now. And they just sort of banded together and said, we're keeping our stuff. Crazy. And that's, I think, where it's probably going to stay. Hmm. Uh, they are trying to get it for a... Uh, I think in 2012 they tried to get it for a, the grand opening of the Grand Egypt Museum. Sounds like it didn't happen. But even then they said no. No. They'd want it for like three weeks and they said nope. <laughs> Under the guise of 
I don't know if it's guys, but they said it'd be too dangerous to transport it. That's the story they have, at least. Well, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So that's uh, how museums work. No. Pillage and deny. Pillage <laughs> and deny. Um, you got anything else? No, sir. That is the Rosetta Stone, everybody. If you want to learn more about it, you should type that word, those words, R-O-S-E-T-T-A, stone, in the search bar at How Stuff Works, uh, and it will bring up this article. And uh, since I said search bar, it means it's time for our message break. Stuff you should know. Uh, now, Chuck, it's time for listener mail. Oh, no. How oh. about, instead, administrative details? Okay. All right, for those of you who don't know, this is at uh, the point where we read off the people who were nice enough to send us little gifts and trinkets and music and letters and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And um, here we go. Go ahead. All right, Sarah sent us some uh, cool uh, graphic prints, one of which was You Can't Take the Sky From Me, Ooh. from uh, one of my favorite shows, Firefly. Nice. Yeah, very cool prints. Uh, Amy sent us a lovely carved wooden cicada from Timber Green Woods. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. Uh, Anne McDonough sent us a Snoopy postcard and a handwritten letter of thanks. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz from New Zealand sent us a lot of stuff that's New Zealand candy. New Zealand chocolates, New Zealand chips, surfboard postcard, really lovely frame photos from her dad, Rudy Goldstein Photography. It's on Facebook. Uh, it's R Goldstein Photography, so check it out. Yeah, it's very cool. I have those on my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean Antoniak sent us some custom vinyls, uh, some stickers from 811graphics.com. He and his brother yeah, nice. have this company. It's uh, cool stuff, like skater-style stuff. Right. Um, buycostumes.com that's B-U-Y costumes.com sent us a full-size adult gremlin costume <laughs> which Ben Bolin wore all yeah, day yesterday in the office that's what I hear. yeah Ben Bolin from stuff they don't want you to know in car stuff he's weird did you see that? What? he emailed me that he did that did you actually see that? I haven't seen the picture of him yet I put on the hand one day and tried to creep out Strickland but he was like that's not the first gremlin hand I've had on my shoulder <laughs> uh, cat teepee Megan oh, yeah. sent a cat teepee my way because I have two cats. And uh, my big boy, Laurent, gets in it now. We call it his spirit tent. Nice. And he just hangs out in there, and uh, it's pretty neat. I mean, it's what you think. It's like a little small teepee for your kitty. That is very cute. So uh, if you have a cat, I would suggest you buying one. Um, let's see. Susan sent you a birthday card. It's a dog drinking beer. Yeah. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, it was. Uh, Kellum Clark sent us some T-shirts. Um... And he is a handyman in Brooklyn, and he gifted us two hours of handyman work oh, nice. to give to someone we know. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. That is really, really cool. So I've actually texted uh, our buddy Joe Randazzo, mm-hmm. said, hey, you need any work done? We have two free hours of handyman work. Mm-hmm. So if you're in Brooklyn, you can go to notjusthandyman.com and uh, give Kellum a call. He'll fix your sink or do whatever you need around the house, I guess. What's he going to do for <laughs> Joe? <laughs> I don't know. Joe didn't respond. We'll go to Hodgman next, I guess, and just okay. work our way down the list. <laughs> Although Hodgman, he can afford to pay people. We should give it to like uh, someone else. Okay. All right. I'll figure it out. Uh, Clive Fennessy gave us some uh, really cool Panama Canal postcards. Yeah, those are neat. Yeah. Uh, Rachel from Uber. Have you heard of Uber? It's a 
sort of like a taxi cab service now. Oh, yeah. But it's town cars. Mm-hmm. And they have an app, and you can, like, say, just come get me now. Right, yeah, Yumi was telling me about that. Yeah, they sent us Uber gift cards, um, and I will send you your gift code for us. Awesome. Like 100 you. bucks in free wow. town car service. thanks yeah. a lot. I know somebody's going to be going to the airport for free. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Kristen Curran has been taking us along with her on a tour of Europe, it seems like. We yeah. got postcards from her from Edinburgh, Bruges, Amsterdam, Slovakia, Berlin, all over the place. Yeah. So thanks for those. Um, we also got something from Threadless, uh, self-designed t-shirt, Bigfoot cradling an alien, Loch Ness monsters in the background. Yeah, Very there nice. was also like a men in black and an abduction going on, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. Very, Very cool. cool. Uh, and then Kira Nurin sent the wives some jewelry, um, and you can visit her store. Thank you very much, Kira, at um, carabouclassics.etsy.com. So that's that's our administrative details for now, right? Yeah, part one. We'll have a part two, I guess, on the next episode. Yes, we will. Where we'll cover music and books. Nice. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And you can join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.